Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her discussion with Dr. Chuck Geddes of Complex Trauma Resources on Children and Complex Trauma. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, and I am excited, as always, to bring you another interview for the podcast today. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about today's guest. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Chuck Geddes. He is a psychologist who has written a book called Children and Complex Trauma, a road map for healing and recovery. He has worked extensively in the field of children and youth mental health and child welfare for over 25 years and completed his PhD at Colorado State University. He's also done a great deal of work in Canada where he has lived at various times. He became interested in the role of complex trauma in children's neurological development through the work of Bruce Perry, Dan Siegel, and Dan Hughes. He's the founder of the Complex Trauma Resources in British Columbia, Canada, and he has worked extensively with children in the foster care system and adopted children through that program. He trains social workers, foster parents, and mental health clinicians across British Columbia, and also now in Arizona through an agency called Christian Family Care. And I think you're really going to enjoy what he has to share with us. His book has multiple chapters on how attachment relates to complex trauma and to understanding children. So we're going to be able to take a dive into some of that. So please stay tuned and Dr. Geddes will be with us in just a minute. Hello, Dr. Geddes, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast as we continue our discussion about your new book, Children in Complex Trauma, a roadmap for healing and recovery. Thank you so much, Karen. I look forward to digging into this a bit more. Yeah. So, of course, as a person that's a total uh, attachment theory nerd or whatever we want to call it. Um, I really appreciated you had quite a bit in your book about attachment and how this relates to caring for children with complex trauma. Um, and I wanted to get into to some of that today. So is there any general comments you would want to say about that before we get into some of the specifics uh, that you bring up in the book? Uh, well, maybe I would just say, so we, I think what we've learned through years is that we have to do two things really well. So one thing we have, and we call these our therapeutic bookends, but one thing we need to do is to, to help with this hyper arousal, that sense of security for the child. And then secondly, we need to deepen attachment and, and develop uh, deep, secure attachments. Um, we know that attachment is so important to help with regulation, but there are other ways to come at the regulation piece as well, separate from the attachment that I, I feel like we need to do kind of um, at the same time. Because sometimes 
just the relationship itself that we're offering for kids who've been so hurt it's hard to get past that kind of reactivity that they have and so we're trying to do a number of things at, at once so would you say with that you're trying to calm the child's nervous system enough that they feel some sort of safety to connect with someone would that be a way of describing what you're saying there uh, absolutely. And it's, it's not, you know, do one and then, then do the other. It's, you're doing both, the, both the things at the same time, but we try and be very proactive about um, how can we help keep uh, throughout the day, be bringing this child back down to a place of calm. I had, um, uh, for, for instance, um, and, and to do this on a proactive basis, rather than waiting till they're dysregulated and then try and sort of bring them back down. I, uh, foster parents and, and caregivers, they have so many wonderful ideas. And uh, one was sharing with me the idea of she would just throw a big towel into the dryer and warm it up. And her little boy, who was about eight and very, very kind of dysregulated and rampaging through the day, she would get this big warm towel and wrap it around him and and she would just talk about how she could feel the tension go out of his body. And she could feel that big, ah, happen almost, and the, and the tension go out of his muscles. And so we're looking for that kind of experience, that sense of just sort of letting things go and thinking about how can we do that many times throughout the day? And we're going to use our relationships to do that as well. But there's sort of a combination of you know, sort of physical things we can do that it's going to quiet the child's nervous system and, and at the same time uh, bring our relationship into that. Yeah, so you, you talk about this in the book. One way that you talk about it is combining relational experiences with very clear sensory experiences. So I think that's, that's a really great example of that, the towel, the pressure, the warmth, combining it with mm-hmm. a relational experience. I have to add, I have... I love warm towels myself and occasionally heat my towel in the microwave, but you you, you do have to watch it more than the dryer because it, you know, can get black and start on fire. (laughs) But there is something about that wrapping in a warm towel um, that is such a great sensory experience. So that's, that's a really neat story of someone coming up with that, with the, with the towel and the dryer. I love it. Yeah. You also in the sections about attachment theory, which I very much appreciated, brought out the idea that this is a relational construct, not we're just looking at the child. We have to look at the child and the parent and how they come together in their own attachment patterning. So could you talk to listeners a little bit about your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so your audience is going to be you know, very familiar with a lot of these concepts. I think what we've tried to do is, again, take take the attachment theory uh, which has kind of got some lab-based language in a way, and try and uh, make that really simple. And so I think about the idea of attachment styles and that children through their experiences are either learning to, when it's not a good, positive, secure attachment, they're either learning to kind of not be engaged with people, actually to move away from people, or they're learning to move towards people. They're interested, they want to connect with people, and they're trying to, you know, sort of fill that need that way. And that um, if we can understand that idea of that, again, trying to make it pretty simple here, well, we've got kids that are 
not interested, maybe have never had pleasurable experiences, particularly around emotion and relationship and connection, who are moving away from you. And you've got children who, on, on the other end, are seeking connection, but are in a lot of turmoil about it because they don't trust that the adults are going to be there for them. So they're in that preoccupied kind of end um, where they're on a reactive attachment where they're, or I, I, yeah, actually I shouldn't use that term. I'll have to come back to that, but, but the kind of reactive in attachment in terms of yes. these, this lots of push and pull. And so I, from, I feel like that's a helpful concept because we can, start to realize because it's this dance between the adults, between the caregiver and the child, it's this interaction that we've got the child's attachment style and then we've got the adult's attachment style. And we need to sort of understand that if we're going to see what where the struggles are sometimes in that relationship. Mm-hmm. So, you for know, example, if, go ahead. Go ahead. Now you go ahead. <laughs> well, I was thinking, for example, if we have an adult who's um, who just love, it got into this work because they want to care for kids, they want to pour out love uh, for kids, and they want to take a child into their home and just wrap them up and get really close and 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 pour so much love on them. And you've got a child who's who's has learned that not only are that attach that connections don't feel good, that connections don't like even make the pleasure center in my brain light up. They're just kind of avoidant. They're more the leave me alone kids. So then when the adult tries to offer the love and affection, the child just pulls away because that's threatening and doesn't feel comfortable and not natural to them. So they pull away. And then over time, what you know, seen too often is then this caring adult that's got all this love to give to the child is feeling frustrated and they end up blaming the child for that. So the child's, there's something wrong with this child. They're not responding to me the way they ought to be responding to me. And so it sets up this, uh, this dynamic, which can end up being quite toxic. And I think the opposite can be true when you've got an adult that's more on the little bit distant end or avoidant end, which I would be personally, I'm a little bit more on that end. I think secure, securely attached, but it's still a little more on that end. Um, you know, if I had a child coming to me who needed me, needed me, needed me, that sets off my own alarm bells. It's like, oh, that's, you want too much. I want to give you this much and you want more. And that would be really hard for me as a caregiver. And so I would withdraw, which then what's that do? It jacks up the child's stress and anxiety about this connection. So they come at you even harder. So there's, and then what do, what do we do? Now all of a sudden we're blaming the child again. If I'm not, if I don't understand what's going on within myself, I'm now blaming the child for these needs where they just keep coming and they can't be satisfied. And, and I'm seeing it as being a problem in the child, as opposed to being able to view it as an interaction difficulty. Yes. Yes. And you also in the, this part of the book where you're focusing on attachment, you speak a bit about issues of shame and working with that. Um, I thought that might be something that would be useful for listeners to hear your perspective on that. We learned a lot about shame from Daniel Hughes, who I know you've had on your podcast before. And, um, and just the idea that this, so as children go through these experiences in their life, they're taking on this gut feeling 
about my worth, my value. And this starts early, you know, your audience knows this starts early in those attachment experiences and, you know, from six months on kind of thing, that sense of when someone's not responding to me, when they respond with anger, when they neglect me, when they, that uh, I don't come to my aid, that that's changing my perception of the world and of others and of myself, but myself in terms of, do I have value? Do I have worth? Am I lovable? And I think that kids take on this from that, early nonverbal, those nonverbal experiences, they're taking on that gut feeling of there's something wrong with me. And I've had so many children and youth tell us that in different ways where they've, they, they might say, you know, I'm a terrible kid. I'm a monster. I'm, that's why I'm not with my parents because I'm a monster. I do these horrible things because there's this, you know, terrible person that I am. So that sense of, is shame is so deep. And, you know, I think we can heal that through attachment experiences when we can figure out the child's needs and respond to their attachment needs. And we can decrease the stress response and we can uh, help them to be start to be successful. We can gradually change that shame. Um, but the shame is, it's almost like it's the uh, caboose on the train. I feel like we have to do all these other things first before that deep core sense of who I am um, starts really to shift. So often we see that we're getting gains in every area across those seven developmental domains. We're seeing significant gains, statistically significant gains at the six month mark or the 12 month mark or the 18 month mark. But often the identity piece is the, the slowest one to kind of come along because of that uh, deep sense of shame that kids carry. So when you say the outcomes, are you redoing your periodically, your functional assessment? Is that how you're measuring that? Yes, we redo that about every six months with the care team. And we're, um, yeah, so we're going over the same questions and we're saying, did we, you know, how, how are they doing? How is, what's their functional ability now in these different areas? It's been been um, it, it's been so exciting actually. So children, so just so you understand, children are referred to our program when nothing else is working. So the kids, so whether they're a four-year-old, whether they're a sixteen-year-old, they're coming to us because nothing else has worked. They are bouncing around between placements. They are they've got broken adoptions. They've got um, they're often in staffed care of some kind. Like just that's the kids that we are called in on. Um, you know, I wish the ministry would take our data and understand that this works. And if we did it early, we wouldn't have all these placement disruptions, but uh, we're not at that place yet where they've uh, kind of adopted that. But I, um, so, so kids are really struggling at the point of time when they come to us, when the team can see these gains. And again, it's, we've got statistically significant gains across all seven domains at the six-month mark and the 12-month mark and 18-month mark. It provides a huge amount of uh, encouragement and enthusiasm because, you know, you can know the child's doing better, but it's still hard, hard, hard work, right? And we tend to, to then focus on what's the problem I'm having this week rather than taking that step back to say, you know, three months ago, that episode would have lasted for two hours, and now you're seeing that even though they blew up and even though there was an incident, you're, you're back down almost to baseline in 15 minutes. Like that's a huge difference. And I, somehow the team's able to, again, when you put it on paper, <laughs> I think the, uh, uh, it's got somehow it's a little more significance to the group. Yeah. I think sometimes the progress with children who have 
experience this level of trauma is slow. And if there's not something measuring it, it's almost hard to see the change sometimes when you're in it. So Mm -hmm. I do think those kinds of assessments are really important. Is your assessment available that others can purchase it or is how does that work like could 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 a listener start using this assessment themselves uh we provide uh, training in the model so we're teaching people our model and and the assessment is part of that process okay we've been a bit reluctant to um sort of put that assessment out by itself as a standalone thing because we don't have uh we don't want people to just sort of see this menu and think they can just grab things off the menu and everything's going to be okay. There's a, mm-hmm. it's a pretty mm-hmm. comprehensive uh, step-by-step kind of approach that we take. Um, okay. Yeah. That makes, that, that makes good sense. So, so, I'm, so I can say that I'm hoping that the book getting out, that that's going to generate a lot of interest and that we can take our, the training program that we have and we can adapt that for people that would uh, be interested from wherever, um, you know, we, since we do so much of that online and that we'd be able to provide that training so people could use the tool and, and the model in their own locations. Great. That's good. So another thing that I wanted to be sure to ask you about before we wrap up our I know our time is going here you talk about practice based evidence instead of not instead of but in addition to let's say it that way <laughs> evidence based practice and i think this is such an important point particularly since there are certain models that have a lot of evidence that are then pushed as the end all, the be all, this is what you have to do to help people and children. And very often they're not even being applied to the problem. They have evidence for improving (laughs) sort of like it's evidence-based and everybody forgets the question evidence-based for what? (laughs) So I wondered if you might share some of your thoughts about, this practice-based evidence idea that you have. Uh, yeah, so so I'm a um, when I do look at research, like so thinking about um, you know evidence-based research. You know, I'm really curious to understand who was part of this, who was part of this subject group, and typically, kids, our kids with complex problems are never part of that group. And so they're excluded from the studies. And so you get this fairly narrowly, my concern is you get this fairly narrowly focused treatment for a narrowly defined problem that, you know, takes 15 years to get from the theory in the university out to the community. And it excludes all the kids that we're caring for that have complex problems in foster care and adoption. And so they're right away, they're not, these, these won't work for them. And so, you know, we think about, um, well, I don't want to go too far down that, that road, but uh, I remember looking at a, um, an evidence-based, a more of a behavioral model. It was a very kind of expensive model, and I looked through the research on it, and I realized that they had a big, such a big subject pool that they were getting, they were taking uh, youth who basically weren't involved with school at all, and they were getting them to attend about an hour a day. And out of all their problems, that was the one thing they were focused, one of the things they focused on. And they got the evidence-based stamp of approval because they got kids to go from zero, you know, zero attendance to like one hour a week 
some ridiculously small number. I thought in our program, we'd see that as a failure. Like that's a, you know, there's nowhere near where you need to get to. And yet somehow that had gotten, you know, because it was statistically significant, this little, little, little tiny unimportant change, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's got that evidence-based label. And I, I just feel like there's so much richness there, especially with our kids where really the, the, what we're understanding about trauma is growing by leaps and bounds over the past, what, 15, 20 years. So the, so whatever, um, whatever therapies we're designing for them now are in the active stage where we're doing it now we can't wait for 20 years for sort of the theory and the read you know out of the universities to kind of catch up to the point where we have a model so we we i feel like we need some things that are working right now and we should be collecting evidence we should be collecting data and uh that's that practice-based evidence idea is this does this work in the real world with these complex kids with this complex system and if it does which our program has then that's that's pretty remarkable and i'll plant my flag on that that's yes. working with our real kids and real complicated cases in the real world well i know that there was another chapter towards the end of your book so it might be a, a good place for us to wind down and folks we are just touching on the tip of the iceberg with everything in the book so I, i'm really hoping you guys will go out and get it and really dig into all the information there is about this topic and many others but i caught the title beware of meds behavior models and video games that caught my i should say that caught my attention that that title and um just wondered if, 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 if there was any um, little snippets you would want to say um, since you devoted a whole chapter to that idea. Uh, yeah, wow, where to start with those? So um, uh, it's, it seems like our society has carried this sort of be more or less a behavioral model about our kids, working with our kids for years. And so we're really sort of fighting against that mindset that's in our culture. Kids learn through conse- you know, consequences, right? They learn through the, uh, the positive or negative things that happen as a result of what they do. But it, for our children, that's ignoring the, um, the, the neurological damage that can happen because of trauma and attachment wounds and so so those programs often don't work for a whole lot of different reasons i kind of lay out some of those you know i think one of the things that behavioral programs often do in the lives of our kids is it increases their sense of shame and failure because they don't do well with it there it brings up their they don't like to be controlled because they're anxious and so you're putting in this controlling system that generate that's going to generate its own kind of reactivity in the kids and then it just i've seen too many cases where they end up feeling like it's just adding to their sense of shame and failure so that's a huge one around the video gaming electronics you know we've got we're caring for children whose brains are what do we say they're kind of they're fragile so they're they're more at risk than a typical child and so i've just said seen too many places where you called into a case and find out the child spending 12 hours a day on some kind of electronic gaming and their brains already can't any child's brain would, would have struggled to handle that the input the sound the noise the adrenaline um all of these things that are happening for our kids our children that we're talking about it's so much more risky and so um yeah so we have to address that so i feel like that's just so coarse that's something 
And the last topic in there is about medications. Again, this is, you know, if you take this uh, scattershot approach of throwing all these different diagnoses at our kids, we end up with a lot of different medications. Parents and caregivers and teams don't understand often what the medications are doing. I'm not sure that the psychiatrists understand how the medications interact often. And we just see our number one job is quieting down that stress response system. So anything that's going counter to that, like stimulant medications, we'd want to be really, really careful about because it might actually be doing more harm than good in some ways. So yeah, yeah. That's, those are my high, highlight level. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I think those are very, very important <laughs> points. And I'm very happy that you elaborate on those in the book. And I'd also, before we end, feel free to share anything you would like to with listeners about where to get your book, about where to go for training in, in the program you've developed. Feel free to have a commercial about anything that you want. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Karen. I wasn't expecting that. But um, yeah, so in the U.S., our books available with Barnes & Noble and with Amazon, and it's uh, available as uh, eBooks, uh, lots of places, so that you can certainly find that. Um, our website for people is uh, complextrauma.ca. So for Canada, complextrauma.ca. There's a complextrauma.com site now in the U.S. the last couple of years, but we're complextrauma.ca. Okay. And we have lots of resources for professionals and and, uh, parents and caregivers and school staff, um, anyone who's working with uh, this, this group of children. Wonderful. And I know you have your own website as well. Um, I'm trying to think of where, where that's at. Dr. Chuck Geddes.com. Uh, yeah, I believe it's, I'm sorry. I believe it's Dr. Chuck Geddes author.com. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, no, 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 you're right. You're right. Actually, Dr. Chuck Geddes.com. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. So in case they wanted to go directly to your site. So, well, thank you so much. Um, first of all, for, for the work that you are doing for kids and families in Canada and around other places in the world. And thank you for giving us your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion. Well, bye-bye for now. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.